0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: I'm Dana Stevens and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest St. Louis style edition. It's Wednesday, March 3rd, 2019, and on today's show, Dumbo is the latest live-action remake from Disney. This time, it's directed by Tim Burton. It stars Colin Farrell, Eva Green, Michael Keaton. The movie did not soar on its floppy ears at the box office this weekend, so we will talk about Disney and also about the new fad for live-action remakes of Disney movies, which we're in for a lot more of. Um, Then the French filmmaker Agnes Varda passed away at age 90 this weekend. She made movies over the course of an incredible six-decade-long career, from the first days of the French New Wave in the early 60s up until earlier this year when her last documentary came out. We'll discuss her life and her work. And finally, we will discuss the recent kerfuffle on Twitter about St. Louis-style sliced bagels and why we're so obsessed in general with fighting inanely about what we should and shouldn't do with our food. Steven Metcalf is still out, sunning himself on the northern Spanish coast, having razor clams. I hate him. But <laughs> I am joined, as usual, by the deputy managing editor for arts and culture at the LA Times. I'm still not used to saying all those words. Julia Turner. Hi, Julia. Hello, Dana. And we are also welcoming back, as our third this week, the film critic for The Atlantic and the co-host of the movie podcast Blank Check, David Sims. Hey, David. Hi, guys. Thanks it for was having me. fun having you last time. Yes. I'm really glad you're back. I'm
0: glad to be back.
1: The original movie, Dumbo, was released in 1941, only the fourth animated feature film from the Walt Disney Company, and it runs only 64 minutes. The 2019 live-action remake, by contrast, runs almost double that length of time at 112 minutes. Disney hired director Tim Burton to fill up those extra minutes and to insert some new characters, subplots, and themes, many of which poke at the cultural hegemony of Disney itself. The film stars Colin Farrell, Michael Keaton, Danny DeVito, Eva Green and Alan Arkin following a traveling circus family and Dumbo, their baby flying elephant. Let's listen to a clip. Welcome. For the record, this was not my idea. Dumbo works alone. So do I. Bonjour, Millie. Ciao. And you. Hmm, charming.
0: Well, maybe he doesn't recognize you without that makeup. So I got to teach you to fly?
1: I know how to fly, ever since I was a child. They taught Dumbo to fly, no? So I don't need your expertise. All right. Okay, you can't tell that much from that clip, but that was all Disney would give us, stingy old Disney. Um, Okay, I'm going to start with you, David, because your podcast, Blank Check... Works on the premise that you go through the entire of of a director, right? Um, Do you do it in order generally? We do. Chronological order? Right. And the director you're doing right now is Tim Burton. Mm -hmm. You've also reviewed this movie, reviewed it pretty favorably.
0: I I did, unlike anyone else.
1: And I have a question related to Mm -hmm. the Blank Check podcast and the review. Do you think that you have Tim Burton's Stockholm Syndrome? And that it's only because you've seen so many bad, bad, bad Tim Burton (laughs) movies that you're okay with Dumbo?
0: Probably. (laughs) I, I do think whenever we do this experiment and it ends with like a new movie of theirs... Rather, I I feel like some people were just sort of like, oh, you know, these Disney remakes, I'm sick of it. I've already seen Dumbo, you know, and I was like, this feels like Burton is reckoning with himself. And maybe I've just been thinking a little too much about. <laughs> I
1: mean, if you were uh, just coming Timmy. off Alice in Wonderland, the last <sighs> Disney remake he made, this would be gold in comparison.
0: Well, and exactly. I mean, the, to to go through Burton's recent efforts, it's Alice, which was his last hit. Uh, huge hit, right? Huge, one of those things huge, where a horrible movie inexplicable is a huge hit, hit right. that no one really sort of remembers fondly at all, but at the time made a billion dollars. And then he did Dark Shadows, which everyone has erased from their brains. And uh, then he did Big Eyes, which sort of went nowhere. Some people stick up for that one, but I think it's kind of kind of a damp- you know, it's just it's whatever. It's it's an okay biopic. And then he did Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. So he's been in this sort of like. What should I? It feels like he's casting around for something to glom onto, rather than like digging into himself for inspiration.
1: And a kids' movie phase too—not his first one. I mean, he's made kids' movies and animated movies in the past, but but he's really getting into getting the children's classics remade. Yeah,
0: and I feel like studios are coming to him and saying, "Like, can you give us the Burton take on X?" Right, like you know that rather than. Burton going to someone and being like, "I've you know I've been pondering Edward Scissorhands or you know he has you know his his original ideas from his early work. Now it more just feels like they're like we need the Burton <laughs> get sheen. me Burton yeah get me Burton.
1: So talk real quick about okay. what does work in this movie for you because I have a feeling that Julia and I are going to be ripping into it mm-hmm. in a second. I
0: and mean, that's fine, that's fine. So Dumbo, as you said, it's a weird movie. Uh, the original, it's only sixty five minutes long. I, I was digging into it, and it was made at this time of, like, total financial crisis for Disney, they had sunk all this money into Fantasia, and it had bombed. And so they needed to make, like, a very cheap and sort of quick movie. And that's why Dumbo is such a, like, little delight. Like, it's it's it ends when he flies, right? And this movie, Dumbo probably flies around the same point in the movie, probably, like, 45 minutes in. And then Tim Burton sort of, like, you know, Wakes up and jumps out of his chair and is like, "What would ha- what kind of capitalist machine would descend on this poor creature?" Once he uh, becomes the star attraction of the circus, because in the in the animated movie, once he flies, he gets reunited with his mother and everything is happy and the movie's over. Like that's it.
1: Right, but here there's a whole... I mean, the second right. half of the movie is all about exploitation, right? right? And this figure clearly based on Walt Disney, yes. played by Michael Keaton, who's kind of a, a an oily showman. I mean, it's a very... Yes. This happened just recently with Ralph wrecks the internet, breaks the internet, whatever, right? right. right? Where there was this p- p- kind of parody or even almost a cruel spoof of Disney within Disney. Yeah,
0: it's uh, the only thing in these recent Disney live-action remakes, which I have mostly been pretty indifferent to where I was sort of just amused that like a director was, was able to sort of sneak in some criticism of the thing he's doing. I understand that I understand the sort of people might just be like, well, you know, that that's a lazy sort of excuse for what is essentially a pointless movie, right? Like just cause you're doing a little criticism of Disney doesn't mean you didn't, you, you're, you still made the $170 million, you know, spectacle for Disney, but uh, If you're going to take these, like, you know, foundational, like, film fables and remake them for people, you might as well, like, you know, build on them and have fun with them rather than doing the thing that the Jungle Book did or the Beauty and the Beast remake did where it's just like, let's just replicate, you know, the the thing that everyone loves as, as closely as possible with, like, magnificent special effects. Right. Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't dispute that Burton seems to be having fun. I'm not sure how much fun he brings to to his audience. Julia, tell me something about Dumbo. What was your experience with the old one and the new one?
2: Well, I will say that if you come to this movie as I did, having never seen the original Dumbo and knowing nothing about it other than that it's a flying, big-eared elephant, this movie will strike you as an original Burton. Like, it is very possible to be like, wow, this movie makes no sense. It requires you to posit that if an elephant were born with enormously big ears but a level more enormous than normal enormous elephant ears everyone in the world would think that what elephant was a noteworthy freak <laughs> like it posits a world in which people have like very specific beauty standards for elephants <laughs> and then when an elephant a child baby elephant is born with slightly large ears everyone's like and it's like ear shaming what is this and so the world feels very like, it became hard for me to imagine the unburtoned version of this movie, which seemed like it flowered very much out of the Burton brain of, you know, isolated, iconoclast freaks trying to find love and hope on the outskirts of society. Um, however, I... So so I spent a lot of the movie puzzling over the plot and why this movie should exist, um, but I thought your note—I think it was in your review, David—where mm. you spoke about how Burton is spending a little bit more time on the interiority of the characters here—struck mm. uh, me as correct. And I think that the movie kind of lights up when Michael Keaton shows up, and when we get taken to, you know, he's the Walt Disneyesque character, and when we get taken to V.A. Vanderveer's, um, you know, steampunk Coney Island. <laughs> uh, I didn't—I did not enjoy myself. It was it was uh, a visual spectacle. I cried a couple times. Uh, You'll you'll be surprised to learn which creature saved the day. It it was okay. (laughs) That's my review. That's my shruggy. Moderate take.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I guess I join you in your shruggy. But I think I I think I brought enough Burton animus into it that Mm -hmm. I somewhat actively disenjoyed this movie. The approach also just changes so radically between the first, I don't know what right. you would maybe the first third and the, the last two thirds or so, up until he part, right. flies and after he flies. Not just because, as you say, he adds all these different characters and themes, but the idea of it being at all sort of historically accurate or making any logical sense just flies out the window. So that it's set in 1919, right? Sure. But that land that Disney builds is clearly kind of like a mid-century, like... Post Art Deco world, yeah, right? It's the like future that, that land, yeah, right? it's all exactly. These sort of
0: big switches and levers and electric lights and all that. Yeah. I mean, you,
1: I guess, historical accuracy is not the most important yeah. thing in which an elephant flies with big ears, but it's more that the tone and look and feel of the movie changes so radically that I felt a little bit like in Alice in Wonderland, where she goes yeah. from a somewhat a story that somewhat resembles the original Lewis Carroll story to this world where she's killing dragons and enacting Joseph Campbell like myth <laughs> kind of scenarios, and uh, this one doesn't go as far down the road of ha- having nothing to do with the original as that one, but um, but yeah, it, I think it, it wanders to some pretty far flung places.
2: But wait, can we hear about your Burton animus? I mean, I I think you know the, the fact of Burton's career is maybe the most interesting thing about this movie, like. I guess I think of him in my head as like a good director, Tim Burton, you know, creator of such indelible movies as Beetlejuice, etc. Um, is the is your position never been good, great but squandering his talent? Like what's what's no, the next never been honest? good. Definitely yeah. not, never
1: been good. I mean, it's somewhat along the lines, although not as extreme as Peter Jackson, where yeah. it's like brilliantly talented first few films, right? Uh, incredible invented. promise, yeah. his own style. And then kind of disappeared with his head far up his own (laughs) fundament in some ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, he became so, over certain periods, so laboriously Burton-esque. I mean, tell me an example because you're doing the blank check on him right now. What's a laboriously Burton-esque movie?
0: Um, I mean, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which is the sort of... There's this. If you're looking at his career, you know you've got basically the first ten years that are very, uh, they're tough to argue with. The Pee-wee, Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands, the Batman movies, Ed Wood, Ed Wood, which is my personal favorite. Uh, and then even like I even I'm fond of the '90s things that were more mixed. Uh, the Mars Attack, Sleepy Hollow, where he's still at least like. So aesthetically, you know, grand that you can maybe forgive like the the, the supreme silliness.
1: Yeah, Mars Attacks has aged well. I mean, Mars I think it was it was well. received it's very poorly. It seemed very weird, movie. and uh, yes. and now it seems it seems I would put it with the good Burton,
0: right? And then in the two thousands, the 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 crux point for me is is Planet of the Apes, which is a movie no one remembers, no one even sort of the Mark Wahlberg one, right? right. Which which was the first time it felt like uh it was a studio being like, come on, Burton, you know. Planet of the Apes, give us a Burton version of this. And then he just gets mired in, like, these visually sort of muddy and, you know, intellectually completely bankrupt remakes or adaptations of things that have already been done well that are trading on his, like, starter kit auteur sort of status. Like, you know, what Julia's is saying is right. Like, everyone thinks of Tim Burton as, like, oh, I know who Tim Burton is, like... I can recognize his aesthetic and his, you know, his love of the outcast, right, from all his good movies. And so he just kind of coasts on that for, I guess it's been almost 20 years, basically, right? I mean, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is a movie where you feel like there's a couple ideas. Johnny Depp is giving this sort of odd, uh, frustrating, you know, hostile performances. Willy Wonka. Like, you, you know, there's a couple things that are sort of aggressive and interesting, but mostly... It feels like a budget-driven movie rather than a director-driven movie. Um. Yeah,
1: and those those two tones, which exist in Dumbo as well, don't mesh that well, right? No. I mean, Disney's st- sticky sweet sentimentality, which right. there's plenty of in Dumbo, and there was in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory too. Sure. And then this side of him that likes to—well, he doesn't work as much with Johnny Depp anymore, but he no. likes to create those perverse, angry, strange, dark characters, yes. right? 100% and uh, right. and he just kind of slams them together. And I guess there were were movies in the past where that worked well, but it seems like it's been failing for quite some time.
0: I also think, I mean, this is a common diagnosis, but CG became, like, his bet noire. Like, in Mars Attacks, which is his first movie that uses a lot of CGI, you can almost feel, like, you know, in the subsequent movies, him being like, oh, yeah, I can just sort of color in the backgrounds. I can do everything with this, like and the tactile like feeling of those early movies is what makes them so special yeah. like the weird stop motion and the 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 costuming and the set design with all the sort of forced perspective and all these crazy things right the Nightmare before liked.
1: christmas not technically a tim not, burton not, movie cuz he didn't direct too, it but, right. but, you know, but uh, it has that that solidity yeah.
0: and then you know i i liked dumbo more than i liked uh, say alice in wonderland which is just this like mud world but that there's like there's not a lot of sets there's not a lot to grasp onto right you know he's he's putting stars in the movie and sort of I think just telling him like do your thing be wacky right like you know whatever and uh, and so there's you know what, what do you sort of bring home from a movie like Alice in Wonderland I don't know she slays the Jabberwocky
1: Well, you know, since you brought up CGI, I mean, I didn't mention this sort of central problem of Dumbo for me, which is that the title character is, you know, just feels like a a computer generated image. So I never did tear up during the many, 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 many scenes where we're supposed to be (laughs) feel ennobled by his flight. Um, In fact, I feel like it occurred to me during the movie that I have the same attitude toward this movie as Alan Arkin does toward it, toward the Dumbo enterprise. (laughs) So Alan Arkin plays this banker who's (laughs) always threatening to take Michael Keaton's funding away. Away, the Walt Disney character's funding away, if he doesn't like what he sees. And sure enough, every show Dumbo puts on, there's either a fire right. or a riot or a mad elephant takes over the tent. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't fund those shows either. Yeah. The, the entertainment production value is just really not he, yeah, there.
0: He's very, he's like, you need to control that elephant, which is fair. If you're going to do an elephant show, the elephant should probably be on board <laughs> with it.
1: But yeah, if you don't feel sympathetic cuteness toward Dumbo, this movie is really going to fail for you. 100%. And he felt he felt like a green screen creation to sure. me. Which he is.
2: Yes well and also the children who are his who are the other entry points are not green screen creations but also feel they might uh, as well be. slightly personalityless and underwritten and um I just saw this piece from Polygon online today about why Disney insists on replacing the characters of its young female protagonists with the idea that they're interested in STEM. As though so they can be like, don't mind us. We made fun of our princesses in the last movie. And now every single girl in our movies loves science. And like science is their personality. <laughs> like she's constantly being like, let's do an experiment. That's how we'll teach Dumbo to fly. And it's like, lady. <laughs> it's like not how get yeah, no, it's that not, was
0: Karen Hahn uh, wrote that piece, and she was. It's an it's an ongoing. A Wrinkle in Time had it too, I think. But at least that's a movie about math, kind of.
1: Right, and her parents are scientists. Yeah, right,
0: whereas in this, like the girls, like I want to be a scientist, and it's like you work at a circus. You need <laughs> to learn animal training and stuff, and, and it it just feels so crowbarred in.
1: Did any performances stand out for you guys? I mean, Colin Farrell's Southern accent seems it seems like it was just imported from the Sofia Coppola movie where he also was unconvincingly Southern. But you can't not like Colin Farrell when he arches his eyebrows at you.
0: He He's so good when he's mournful and sad. I, I, I'm i all in on, like, droopy, depressed Colin Farrell. They should have just let him use his accent, though. Like, an Irish guy that in works. 1919 would be eminently plausible.
2: Right. Why wouldn't he just be, like, an Irish immigrant to right. the traveling circus? Yeah. No, that would have been—that would have upped it. I did see another post online that was like, Colin Farrell somehow manages to be hot under the clown makeup, <laughs> <laughs> which was not unpersuasive. Um no, I thought his performance was good. I will also say, and this may be too personal a response to the film, but once I performed in sixth grade in a production of Barnum, the uh, musical about B.T. Barnum and his life and exploits, in which I had a number of small non-speaking roles, one of which was to be a trapeze artist, um, whom... I embodied with a certain icy hauteur, and I felt when I saw Eva Green's performance, I was like, "That's who I was trying to be." Needless
1: to say, it's like funny. <laughs> Maybe she was self. in the audience. Maybe she was picking right. up tips right then and there. She is, she is pretty fabulous. I mean, she just looks incredible. It really does. is all about sort of how she looks on the trapeze, and uh, and she looks incredibly gorgeous. She's very Tim Burton esque. I mean, right. she, she's she been has, his avatar for the last time She's kind of amused for him. Yeah, and apparently was very afraid of heights and had to <laughs> oh, overcome that fear for those trapeze. Which is which is kind of amazing. That so is amazing. Good for Eva.
0: Um I do like Michael Keaton. We already brought up Karen Hahn, so I'll bring this up I'll mention this from her review. She called him business Beetlejuice in this movie. Uh which <laughs> I thought was apt. Like again, I do think that Burton's work with actors at this point seems to be just like winding them up and letting them go. But like I Keaton is such like an unabashed ham when he wants to be, and like I'm fine with that. Because I I know he can do the spotlight, you know very internal very like restrained stuff if he wants to but i I like you know this movie needs like as much live wire energy from its actors as possible
1: yeah and danny devito as well i think seems very at home he's having fun but it somehow is not an ensemble and that may again be because of just the sheer size and scale of the production and all the green screen and the fact that they were probably just you know standing on floors marked with tape the entire time right all right. Well, whether he grows or not, I guess you're going to keep on seeing his movies mm-hmm. <laughs> for the next good while and talking about them on your podcast. Yeah, so if you want to hear some more, David Sims on Tim Burton, go to the Blank Check podcast. Mm, yes. And if you want to talk back to us about Dumbo, new or old, you can tweet at us at Slate Cult Fest or write us a note at culturefest at slate.com I'm going to take a little break right now and do this week's business. First, we want to talk about Slate Day, which is coming up on Saturday, June the 8th. Slate will be in the Chelsea Market Passage on the High Line and in the SVA Theater in Chelsea with a day of live podcasts, energetic conversations, and fun experiences. You can start the day at our brunch show with the host from Outward and the Waves. Then put your pop culture knowledge to the test by joining a trivia team featuring Slate's culture writers and editors, including I know Chris Malanfi and, and I are both doing this. You can go behind the scenes of art with Studio 360, politics with Trumpcast and culture with Decoder Ring. Oh, yay. Willa Paskin will be there. Bring your kids to the first ever mom and dad are fighting Playdate to enjoy some organized chaos with the hosts of that show. And you can come see us. We're doing a live culture gab fest on the Highline. You can come for the whole day with an all-access pass, or you can just grab tickets for your favorite show during the day. Either way, we can't wait to see you on June 8th. For tickets and more information about Slate Day, go to slate.com live. In Slate Plus today, I promised when we opened up our Tim Burton segment on Dumbo that we would talk about the new craze for live-action remakes of animated movies, and we had enough to talk about that we never got there. So that's going to be our Slate Plus segment today. With David and Julia, we are going to talk about the many, many animated movies that are coming up in the near future, right? Mm-hmm. Mulan... Uh, Aladdin, Lion King, Lion King and uh, and the ones that have come in the past. And what happens when you translate an animated film into a live-action one? To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing our show and all your other favorite Slate shows. And in return, you get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and many other benefits. So if you want to support the Culture Gab Fest, please go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus. All right, let's get on to uh, to Anya Varda. I'm really glad that we're devoting a segment to Agnes, Agnes because I didn't get to write about her. No. Um, I, I didn't... mean, I had
0: to write a brief obit, but that was it.
1: And, uh, and there was enough time to get into her films a little bit this weekend and mm-hmm. try to think about this vast filmography that she has. The idea that we sometimes try to do when we talk about, you know, an artist like her with a huge body of work who's passed on is that each of us comes in with a different movie to talk about. Um, I don't know if we all did that this time. I sort of watched around all weekend mm-hmm. and rewatched and saw a few new things. But let's just set up a little bit for those who don't know her who Anya Varda was. Anya Varda directed films beginning in the mid 50s, if you can believe that her first film was in... 1954-55. And uh, her last film was released six weeks ago. It was released in, in 2019. She made over 40 feature films, short films, documentaries, fiction during that period. She regularly changed genres and styles radically and did the opposite of what we just talked about with Tim Burton of getting stuck in a rut of always doing the same thing. Uh, Some of her more famous titles over the years, Cleo from 5 to 7 is kind of her her new wave classic that you'll often see in roundups. I mean, really, she was the only female French new wave director, at least whose work we can now see. Um, Le Bonheur. The Gleaners and I, which I know you saw this weekend, David, mm. Faces, Places, Vagabond was the first Varda movie that I ever saw. We'll talk about that. She was also married for many years to Jacques Demy, the great uh, French filmmaker who made
0: The Umbrellas of Cherbourg and
1: The Young like Girls of Rochefort, of Rochefort, right, who right, kind yeah. of pioneered this, this crazy bright technicolor musical style. We've talked about him recently on the show, I believe. And uh, and he died of complications of AIDS in around 1990. In the early 90s, I think, yeah. um, one of the films that she made that is really hard to find, unfortunately, I wasn't able to rewatch it this weekend. It's called Jaco de Denault. It's a documentary about her husband's life and work. Um, and then around the 2000s, she made this radical shift in her work because of digital photography. The Gleaners and I, I think, was her it's first digital documentary. It's the first one, which part of the fun. And, uh, and this thing that she had always been interested in, which we'll talk about, which was just everyday life, filming everyday people and being an, an indiscreet presence who was able to, you know, to get a glimpse of their lives. Doing that was so much easier with this lightweight digital technology that, um, that she started to make a whole different kind of film. And the last Few decades of her life, couple decades, I guess, were essentially her going around France, finding interesting stories to tell, and telling them in her in her own very unique way. She started to bring herself into her films more and several of her last films have her name in the title and are in some way about her biography or about the the world that surrounds her. And yet there couldn't have been a less kind of narcissistic filmmaker. She was extremely generous toward all of her subjects. Uh, David, do you want to start with what movie you chose and why and what your experience with Agnes Varda has been?
0: Um, I I watched The Gleaners and I have have seen most of the the early stuff, you know, the... the, um Le Bonheur and Cleo and uh, Mm -hmm. Poincot, you know, those movies that the left bank movies that she'd made. But I am I'm more scattershot on her her digital documentaries and things like that. I mean, as we found, she can be kind of hard to access. Like, you know, a lot of her work is not easily like rented or, or seen unless you're going to like a retrospective, maybe the restoration of the Criterion's sort of digital library will change yeah, that. Yeah, Criterion I has
1: done almost all of her films, but unfortunately yeah, now they're now only they're on, on DVD. Is
0: gone or whatever, right. Um, but I'd never mm-hmm. seen The Gleaners and I, uh, which I, I knew was sort of this, as you say, this sort of pivot point in her career where she got her hands on a digital camera and started uh, just sort of filming anything she could l- see that she could find interest in and trying to draw insight out of it. And uh, it's so. Have you you've seen it? Yeah. It's so like playful and um, empathetic, which is such such a an enduring like thing in her career. All the you know all the starting in the beginning, uh, where she she could sort of put the camera, point the camera at quote unquote real life or uh, marginalized or underseen figures without it feeling exploitative or. Uh, you know, patronizing in any way like that. The Gleaners and I is about gleaners who are, through history, the sort of people who mill through, like, uh, after a harvest, picking up the things that didn't get picked up, like pieces of corn or potatoes or, you know, hay or anything like that, that they're sort of, like, picking over the land to to retrieve. And she's sort of trying to find, like, gleaners in every... Uh, Uh, level of French society in the cities like she talks to dumpster divers she talks to sort of squatters she talks to people who are allowed to go to vineyards and and collect the grapes before the the boars start eating them like after the harvest has happened things like that but she and she's also turning the camera on herself and having fun with this camera there's this one shot where she's she's picking around the potatoes and she finds a heart-shaped potato and she's delighted by it and so she 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 cuts to an image of herself with a digital camera in one hand uh, picking up the potato in the other and she sort of remarks on the images, like, look at me, like, you know, I'm not filming right, like, you know, and like she's sort of always happy to be goofy and kind of, uh, I guess, unnarcissistic, un- un- right? That's what you said, like, about, about herself and the way she uh, is intruding but also beholding, like, the things she's interested in. She... <laughs> She's hard to talk about.
1: Yeah, she really is. I mean, I feel I feel like such <laughs> yeah. su- love for her over so many right. years that there's a, there's a lot there.
0: And she became this sort of you know mascot esque figure. Not you know not uh, she wasn't doing that herself, but like because she's such a sort of lovable and empathetic and open hearted figure, it, she, it, she marginalized isn't maybe the right word, but like people would sort of I think uh, maybe not take her documentaries as seriously because they were so playful and they weren't like hard hitting or or you know demanding or sort of aggressive pieces of uh um polemic but like they in showing you these people and in talking to them and and in trying to investigate the sort of like day-to-day business of their lives she's doing a much better job than like a documentary that kind of lectures the audience from on high i feel like in in investing you in their lives and trying to help you understand, like, a, a social class or a job that you might not otherwise be able to
2: uh, understand.
1: Julia, what what film did you pick? Tell, tell me about it.
2: So I watched Faces Places, which came out two years ago, um, and it's a collaboration with a mural artist in France named JR, in which they travel France, encounter people in all walks of life, and uh, then in many cases paste gigantic representations of them on crumbling old structures, on sometimes newer ones. Um, and I loved it. I mean, I, I I saw it last night after I watched Dumbo. So it was possibly <laughs> one of the few Tim Burton Dumbo slash Anya Svarta doubleheaders uh, being conducted uh, on April 1st in the year 2019 and kind of went into it like, ah, I got to watch this French ladies movie before I go to bed. Got to really pack it in. And I got totally lost in her world. And and this is going to sound naive, but one thing that watching the documentary did for me was connect the work of being a director to the work of seeing the world Um, and maybe uh, maybe that's what all directors are doing. But obviously, when you're thinking about a director like Tim Burton, it feels like what he's conjuring is things that are in his mind. He's trying to project his internal cockeyed, pinstriped version of reality out into the world and make it exist. And that's maybe part of why he's gone CGI mad, right? And there, there were these... Shots in this movie, which is very episodic, very loosely structured, feels kind of like a long, playful hang between these two artists of very different generations. He's 33. She's in her 80s at the time they make the movie. They clearly connect and are enjoying each other's company and respecting each other's forms of art and delighting in the kind of different collaborations they can get up to together. Um, it, It feels very uneventful and yet arresting. There are these little intermittent shots of just the landscape they're driving through or passing by as they get to wherever they're going that remind me of those moments you have in travel when you think, whoa, the world is a strange and beautiful place and it's crazy that I get to live in it, um, which is one of the things that your eyes can bring you in the world. And somehow it felt very close to that sense of looking at the world to apprehend what it means to be in it and be alive in it. Uh, and that closeness to the bone was was uh, arresting. And I think it's also a movie because of the discrepancies in their ages and their approaches to their art about mortality and age and death. And all. it sort of begins to mine deeper topics, but it does it with a very light touch. I finished it a little bit in Love, I think.
1: Yeah, I I That's remember the scene movie. from that where they're they're visiting a graveyard. They're wandering around kind of a country graveyard, overgrown with weeds, and he's asking her how she feels about death, and it sounds so depressing, but it's the sweetest, most playful kind of scene. Right. Um, yeah, Faces Places is a g- is a good place to start if you haven't seen any of her films. If only 100%. because it's easy to find. Yeah. It was nominated for an Oscar a couple years ago, and so it's out there. It's on a lot of streaming platforms. Um, but I decided to dig dig deep and do a deep cut because mm-hmm. I, just because I was so curious about her films, and it does take a while to find. The I had to sign up for a new service, free trial in order to see it. But I watched this 1975, very short, 75 minute long documentary called Daguerreotypes that, um, that, is so wonderful, Luke. So the premise of it, she lived for many years. In fact, she was still living there when she died on the Rue Daguerre, right, named after Louis Daguerre, who invented the Daguerreotype. Uh, And Daguerreotypes is not about Daguerre at all, although she mentions him at the beginning. It's about the types, the teep who live on her street. And so it's really almost a a, a sketch back, you know, in 1975 for the stuff that she was going to do later, traveling around France with the gleaners and with JR and talking to different people. But she never goes beyond, you know, a block or two around her house. And so among other things, it's this incredible Exploration of what Paris, a sort of normal middle-class neighborhood in Paris, looked like in 1975. What people were wearing, you know, how they moved and spoke. And uh, it's not so much interviews; she talks a little bit to people, but a lot of it is really just observation. So she kind of plants herself in, you know, the the perfume shop or the place where the guy is cutting keys for people, and or the the baker making baguettes and watches them live through their day. But slowly, over the course of these the 75 minutes, these people start to emerge as characters and then late in the movie, a magician happens to come to the neighborhood, which is such a Varda-esque development. And this kind of corny, you know, middle-aged vaudevillian-style magician sets up in a cafe and does a magic show. And most of the people at the magic show are people that we've gotten to know from just seeing them on the street. And so watching them sort of come up and be his subject and get their finger fake chopped off and things like that is, is just so fun. And uh, it's almost like the movie happens to her and she just lets it happen. So you really just see in that movie how... How curious and kind of intellectually alive she was.
2: Can you can you guys fill me in a little bit on how her gender played into her early career? I mean, I don't think of the French New Wave as being about uh, the female gaze particularly, or about um, I don't think of its radical gender politics as being its primary contribution to the history of world culture. And you know, there's a striking moment. I, I guess I'm going to spoil a little bit of the end of Faces Places, but I. I think it's worth doing given that the it's not really a plot driven movie but there's a moment at the end of Faces Places where she tries to bring JR to meet Godard and Godard blows her off and she's upset. I mean she's it's it's this really tender, sensitive, upsetting moment uh that the ending of the film wraps itself around. And I felt like there was a hole there, there about French directors that I did not understand, and wonder if you cineasts could fill
0: me in. One thing I learned when I was poking around yesterday about her uh, is that when her first movie played mm-hmm. La Pointe Courte, it played at Cannes, and but like was sort of in '54 and was kind of ignored. But then it played in Paris in '55. It came out, and Truffaut, who was a critic at the time like came to see it and was like, I don't get it. Like, you know, like wrote a sort of middling reviewer. He was like, Oh, I didn't really, I, I don't know what she's doing here. They're just normal people. Like, I don't get it. Cause you know, they were such stylists and they were so obsessed with American cinema and, and, and like the sort of the, the boundaries of, of what you could do with the medium. And I think that she sort of baffled them initially, even though obviously she becomes, you know, a kind of part of the coterie, but You do think of it as this sort of snobby boys club. As much as I love so many of these movies and I love Truffaut and he's such an empathetic filmmaker himself, he figures that out. But uh, I don't, yeah, I don't, where, Dana, where do you like see her in all, in all of that?
1: I mean, the first thing that struck me when Julia was saying, you know, where did, how did gender figure into her early career was Cleo from five to seven, right. I mean, which is yeah. about, it's a beautiful film, also would be a great place to start. Um, it, it would give you a sense of how far she's come, right. you know, and how, how much her style has shifted and changed over the years. But it's in black and white and it feels more like a French New Wave that movie. That really
0: feels like a New Wave film. In it's a sense really that pretty it's protagonist. Handheld camera yes. out in
1: the street, right? right. She's and she's
0: at cafes, she's monologuing. But
1: the part of it that sets it apart from, you know, A Breathless or another of the early French New Wave movies from that time is that it's completely about a woman right. and it's about a woman's interiority and what's happening to Cléo, the main character played by Corinne Marchand mm-hmm. from 5 to 7, is that she's waiting for the lab results for for a, some kind of cancer screening. And uh, we don't quite know what her illness is, but we know that it could be fatal. So basically, it's it's almost like a memento mori, you know, those those old paintings that would be a beautiful woman looking in the mirror and she sees a skull or something. The whole movie is about mortality and beauty in that way. And so part of what she does from five to seven on this afternoon, the movie takes place more or less in real time, uh, is that she goes into a shop and tries on hats, you know, and she um, sort of glams herself up. She's a singer and she goes and practices her song, a gorgeous song written by Michel Lagrande, also recently deceased, great right. French composer. Right. He's in the movie too. Right. Um, and it's all about her essentially coming to terms with her own mortality. Um, I don't know if that quite answers the question, but the, I mean the mere fact that we stay with this woman for the entire day, you know, various men try to pick her up because she's gorgeous, but nothing really comes of it. And it's not a movie about, you know, a- achieving happiness or any kind of romantic stability or anything like that it is once again about a woman tramping around mm-hmm. through the world by herself and uh it's it's a gorgeous movie it's
0: an incredible movie
1: okay we could go on all day there's also so many of her movies that i haven't seen that i am now excited so to see and find yeah. so i really want some listener feedback on this one if people know which agnes varda movies we should see and how to see them please tweet us at slate cult fest or you can write us an email at culturefest at slate.com r.i.p agnes mm-hmm. All right, I feel like this is an awkward segue, but in a way I think Agnes would approve of moving straight from talking about her wonderful 6 decades of work to talking about sliced bagels because she loved ordinary everyday things and uh, she actually and also And breakfast pastry. <laughs> yes, she loved food and she liked to film food. There were lots of great-looking baguettes in that daguerreotype film. So, on to bagels we go. Late last week, Twitter exploded with a controversy over of all things bagels. As noted in a piece by Slate's Heather Schwedell, this is the third bagel-related dust-up over the last year, along with Cynthia Nixon's bagel order, right? right. Remember when she was running for governor? and What, what was her order? Wasn't it, was, it a cinnamon raisin. raisin?
0: Wasn't that the, That's right. the, the It was a sweet bagel thing. with a savory right. topping, right?
1: right? We can get I there. I think there were capers involved, too. Sure, She was were getting like
0: a classic lox bagel, but she was putting it on cinnamon <laughs> raisin. I <laughs> right. think people were disgusted by that. Right. We, we
1: have to get to our level of disgust about that. But right. first, I must tell you that the third twitter dustip about bagels which i missed entirely was the bagel emoji wars yeah
0: that was just that the bagel emoji which i guess was introduced at some point just didn't really look like a bagel it looked like a roll Mm -hmm. with a hole in it (laughs) and i guess people were mad about that i forget if they updated it it didn't look look properly boiled in hot water right exactly
1: So this latest bagel argument came about because of a viral tweet by Alec Krautman, who posted a photo of two boxes of bagels sliced St. Louis style, as he put it, which meant cut lengthwise. If you can imagine running a bagel through a bread slicer so that it comes out in, you know, a lot of small, thin, vertical slices. Users immediately took sides. It became a passionate argument about whether this was a good thing because you got more portion control with your bagel or was it a grave insult to the bagel itself? Uh, So this is an utterly silly argument, obviously, but we like to have silly arguments here once in a while. And we also like to talk about food. I don't think we've ever had a food segment where we didn't have something to say. Um, So this is in part about slicing bagels vertically. But I think pretty soon we will all agree that it's about more than that. It's about how we litigate food questions and arguments online. Um, To start, let's go around and get a yay or nay on the St. Louis style bagel slicing. David?
0: I mean, I'm a nay. You shouldn't do that, I guess. Like, I mean, you can do whatever you want. I'm always of the opinion of like, look, do what you want. I don't I don't really understand. No, no proper bagel could withstand that. Like, they're mm-hmm. spongy things. Like, they're not really meant to be run through a bread slicer.
1: They're going to be crushed just by the mere action. Right, of so
0: you're slicing. sort of, it's beyond like a taste mm-hmm. thing. You're just sort of like turning this uh, object into something that will no longer function. But the the bagel itself has been so perverted outside you know around the world already right you know there's there's all these sort of big fluffy spongy bagels that are kind of basically just giant bread rolls anyway so if you want to slice those what do I care like it's okay. yeah, there are, like, there are already bad bagels
1: happening to bagels what if I slice a
0: bad bagel you can slice a bad bagel that's my take
1: were you outraged by the bagel slicing Julia or are you doing it St. Louis style now
2: I was neither outraged nor am I doing it St. Louis style here is here is my gotcha question about this. I actually think it would be kind of interesting to try this, particularly with stale bagels. But it looked very dependent on being run through like a professional bakery bread slicer. Like trying to do this with a serrated bread knife at home seemed like a recipe for, uh, you know, knife cuts on your knuckles and... Um, like squashed bagel, as you as you say, like right. unless you have a really good serrated bread knife, the density of a proper bagel would resist slicing by knife. I do. I would like to see what an industrial bread machine could do with like some really solid offerings from H H. And I bet. I mean, it seems like with a baguette, right? You can tear it and eat a nice crusty chunk of it that's full of like great little yeasty holes and uneven knobbly edges. Or you can slice it very thin in a bread slicer or with equivalent motion and toast it and use it for crostini for like a tasty dipper spread. And that is also a reasonable thing to do with that beloved starchy bread item related to a culture about which people have passionate feelings. And I don't see why you couldn't also do that with a bagel. Like if I had an industrial bread slicer on hand, And if there were halfway decent bagels in Los Angeles, neither of which is true, I would try it, I guess. And I can imagine like toasting it up, you know, spreading a little like lemony hummus on top or something like you could make a thing that was delicious, a tasty snack, I think. Um, You could also have kind of like a a little, you know, soupçon de bagel instead of having like a gigantic, huge bagel bagel clump that you eat in the morning and then you have to like comatosely lie around your house moaning all morning and I will say if you're trying to figure out how to have less bagel in your bagel this definitely seems preferable to the um what is it even called spooning or scraping oh the, the like, scoop bagel the, oh, the
0: scooping which the they will do bagel. you know in any New York bagel shop they'll do that
2: wait right. so like all you know anybody who's eating a scooped bagel and thinks this is sacrilege is themselves a lunatic um I'd rather have less bagel, but in its typical in- interior to exterior ratio, than just the chewy exterior. So I don't know. I mean, it's degustibus is like literally about food, right? So obviously everybody should do whatever they want, but um, I don't know. I I, w- I would say I'm St. Louis curious.
1: <laughs> well, there was a writer for Grub Street who tried to go around New York right. asking different bagel shops if well, they would slice a bagel me. that way. Right. And First of all, no one could even understand what she was talking about. And then she was just being actively <laughs> laughed at by both merchants and customers in the store. Yeah,
0: I think some of them did it, but they were like, I mean, we—that that is possible. Like, we have a slicer. We can do it. But it, why would you want <laughs> Might that? Might as well puree you know? it and make a bagel right. smoothie out
1: of it or something. Well, I think what I liked about this controversy and The response to it, in addition to the ridiculous meme of things being St. Louis style and just posting horrible pictures of food and saying it's St. Louis style. Um, And then people from St. Louis standing up for themselves. We don't do this. Was just the notion of, of regionality in food. I just I always like when there's any trace in our post-global world of something regional. So for example, when I go on a trip to California, I'll always bring C's candy back from the airport, You know, which reminds me of my grandmother visiting from California when I was a kid and bringing C's candy. And maybe there's a place in New York you can get C's candy, but I don't want to know about it. I want to think about it as a California food. And in that sense, obviously, in the US at least, we will leave out Montreal for the moment, bagels are New York food, right? And so New York, it's very proprietary about its bagels. So there's also you know, some regional snobbism in saying, how dare you slice a bagel like that, or that's not a real bagel, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Right, but that's my snobbery, where I'm like, look, if you're outside of New York and you're having a bagel, is it really a great bagel? Probably not. So slice You're it. You're already turning into bagel chips. What do I impossible. care? Right. Yeah. But isn't
1: it strange that there is that kind of regionality? And it exists yes. in countries, too. I mean, you go to Italy and the food is amazing. Every single sandwich you get from a gas station in Italy is, is incredible food, right? But why is that? I mean, we now have good ingredients here. We can fly things all over the world. Obviously, you can sort of concoct Italian meals in any place in the world that you can get the ingredients for them. But there's still a sense, you know, it's the terroir thing, you know, the idea that the actual... Location the, of the culture that the food came from is the best place to have the food, and that, that's more and more a chimera. But I like the idea that it could still be true.
2: I mean, I also think if you were an Italian and you were driving on our autostrada and like rocketing down ninety five, and you stopped in at to an Carl Exxon, Jr. <laughs>
1: right.
2: Yeah, or well, Rogers. like if you stopped in and had, you know, suppose you went to like the gas station mini mart. And you got yourself a Hostess cupcake and a bag of Cool Ranch Doritos and, I don't know, like modern American coconut water. You'd be like, what marvels, what delights, like the flavor sensations here. (laughs) Yeah, like part of it's just the novelty of like, oh, my gosh, everything they do here is so strange and interesting. I mean, yes, Italian food is better generally than what you can get at a gas station on 95. But some of it is just the perspective, I think.
0: That happened. I was in Virginia once in like in Western Virginia, you know, not not a particularly built up part of Virginia. And I stopped at a gas station and I was very hungry and I got chicken tenders. They had like, you know, like a little stand. And I was like, I'll get some chicken tenders. And she was like, sure. And what sauce do you want? And I was like, honey mustard. And she was like, we make it here. And I was like, Okay, you know, sure. And then I ate it in my car and I was like, These are the best chicken tenders <laughs> I ever eaten in my life. Like I've never had a good Did chicken you go tender back and tell until her? Yes. <laughs> I mean I had to go back and I was just like so I, I think a place can be part of the delight of it, right? Where I was so delighted that this extremely unassuming place had given me good food was part of the fun, right? Like I mean, so oh yeah, I like I like the the terroir concept.
1: Let me take this conversation to another place, which is conversations online and in general, kind of in the internet world about about food and these Mm -hmm. food fights that we're always having. Ruth Graham wrote a great piece for Slate about this last Thanksgiving that was about Thanksgiving turkey and the annual argument about whether turkey is good, is turkey bad? She was talking about the strange fact that it has now become sort of the the insouciant claim to say, no, the food that we eat on our American holiday every year is actually good. And she advances the interesting idea that these debates are an attempt to grasp the internet that we used to have a few years ago. Let's call it the pre-2016 internet when we could have silly arguments about things like turkey and Slicing bagels all day because there wasn't a sense that the world was falling apart as at, rap, right. at rapid a rate as it now seems to be, and uh and I see some of that happening. In fact, not even in the context of researching this, but just randomly on Buzzfeed, I saw some article yesterday, I think, about coffee is bad and everyone who likes it is bad. And so because we're having this conversation, I clicked on it to read about why coffee is bad. And not that you could really make an argu- reasoned argument sure, for that, but there was taste, none. It was just right. a lineup of gifs of <laughs> people <laughs> drinking coffee from Getty images and, uh, you know, those people being insulted for their taste. And ultimately, it is a completely empty argument, right, to say, like, the thing that you put in your mouth, you should not be putting in your mouth because I don't like putting it in mine. Applies to sex as well as food.
0: Um, I think the thing that was sort of fascinating about the St. Louis thing was that... I have no idea if that's actually how they do it in St. Louis. And from what I could tell on the internet, there wasn't a lot of consensus that like, yeah, no, they do do like a lot of people in St. Louis, like you said, were sort of like, I don't know. I've never heard of anyone slicing a bagel in a bread machine, but simply him saying St. Louis style, like just was enough to spark a lot of sort of concern over like, yeah, is this, is this a thing? Are we allowed to trample all over this? Does it make it worse that they're branding it? Like, Whereas if he had just gone to Panera and gotten a bunch of bagels and run them through a slicer and been like, here you go, you that's the one thing where you might be able to objectively be like, well, you did it wrong. It's like a sandwich with the, you know, uh, with the peanut butter and jelly on the outside. That was one of the jokes of St. Louis food. Like if I gave you if you asked for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and I gave you that you would be within your rights to say, like, "You, you did this wrong. Right. You know, this isn't a matter of taste. So I guess that's that's the sort of line that these debates end up, like, straddling.
1: And by branding it St. Louis-style, right. you get you get to be less you wrong. You be like,
0: oh, okay, I guess I should... St. Louis-style, let's dip this, you know, bagel chip, right? A soft bagel chip. I don't know how else you would describe these little slices.
2: I do think <clears throat> that the Post would have gone much less viral if it had not uh, impugned an entire <laughs> locality. Right. Like, I think the location was crucial to its virality, for sure. And I will confess that... My intellectual principle is people like what they like. It's fine. You like what you like. They like what they like. Sometimes it's interesting to learn how people's tastes are different than your own. Uh, I also, you know, I think it's just a matter of mood. And that's maybe why Ruth Graham's piece resonates. I remember at Slate once we had a fight about whether Triscuits or Wheat Thins were the better cracker. And despite generally feeling like getting your dander up around a food, an online food fight is probably not the best use of your energy or time. Obviously, Triscuits are a much better cracker, even though Wheat Thins are a fine cracker. And I felt very vehement about it. And I believe I expressed my views with some fervor in our online internal Slack channels. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> like sometimes you're just in the mood. To That's take the place a stand. for that
1: argument. I remember right. that. I don't think I was even on that Slack thread, but I remember the, the legend of the wheat thin trisket argument yeah. that that raged all day long. And those conversations are really fun to have in social settings or, you know, on a on a bunch of work emails. The problem is turning it into some sort of reasoned right. argument in a persuasive context.
0: But it's sort of I mean in England there's this classic, there's in England there is a confection called a Jaffa cake, which is a soft Sort of cookie-like, orangey-flavored thing with chocolate on it. Right? It's it's soft, but it has the shape of a cookie. And apparently, and this I've never was subjected to it when I was it sounds like
1: those Pims chocolate cookies, which are it's, really good. Yeah. Right.
0: And a classic interview question would be, "All right, is a Jaffa cake a cookie? Like, right. is it a, you know, or is it a cake? Is it a biscuit or a cake? And it's not like there's an, an, an a right answer, but it was more just sort of like stake out a position on this like steaks free topic is a hot dog and a sandwich that exa- one went viral, hot dog a right. sandwich exactly and like and just give me give me some solid evidence and it just becomes like a fun exercise in in debating when you when there's nothing the fate of the world does not rest on if a hot dog is a sandwich or not
1: yeah i mean maybe that is that is the appeal of those conversations is right. that they're kind of contentless and relaxing right. and everybody can have an opinion without offending anyone else right
2: right exactly
1: at least not too gravely
0: sometimes people get offended though you never know
1: but is a hot dog a sandwich? No. <laughs> but it's why a hot not? dog. But it's meat between pieces of bread.
0: I think, yeah, well, here we
2: go. I mean... <laughs>
1: <laughs> Julia, arbitrate on this one and then we will close the segment out. The only
2: way to end this segment is for you guys to go back and forth about that as <laughs> Ben Frisch slowly turns down the sound. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the bread has to be horizontal. We I can fade out so- ourselves. <laughs> but
1: the sauerkraut. <laughs> All right. If you have an opinion on whether a hot dog is a sandwich, whether bagels should be sliced vertically or whether such things are done in St. Louis or not, drop us a line. We would love to continue the argument ad infinitum. We are already there at the part of the show where we endorse. Julia, I'm going to go to you first, because since David's here in the room with me, I think I've talked to him first on every topic. So you go first. What do you have this week?
2: Uh, I'm going to endorse something that I have spoken about before on the podcast, but the poet W.S. Merwin died a few weeks ago. I don't think we've spoken about it on the show yet. And one of my favorite poems or a poem that is meaningful to me, that I love, is by W.S. Merwin, and I thought I would read it. The poem is called To the Words. When it happens, you are not there. Oh, you beyond numbers, beyond recollection, passed on from breath to breath, given again from day to day, from age to age, charged with knowledge, knowing nothing indifferent elders, indispensable and sleepless, keepers of our names before we ever came to be called by them, you that were formed to begin with, you that were cried out, you that were spoken to begin with, to say what could not be said, ancient, precious, and helpless ones, say it.
1: That's beautiful. What's the title again? To the Words. All right, another difficult transition, <laughs> especially if you're doing something goofy. David, what have you got? No, I think I'm going to
0: go for the poetic thing rather than the goofy thing. Um, but uh, you know, High Life, Claire Denis, her new movie. Speaking of French uh, female directors of note, her new movie High Life is out this week, uh, which is a space, a philosophical sort of space epic starring Robert Pattinson and uh, Juliette Binoche.
1: Claire Denis in space. I did Claire not know Denis she would go there. Claire in
0: space. She went to space, and it's about a, a group of convicts who have been put on a sort of a spaceship that looks like a Lego brick that's just kind of floating to some sort of unknown disaster and uh, the strange, like, vagaries of life on, on such a weird boat, you know, with all these weird people who have been bundled into this uh, sort of black box experiment that you begin to understand more of as as things go on uh yes it's in english uh and it's a lot of it is just robert pattinson wandering corridors by himself uh in a jumpsuit um but uh it is like many a Denis movie it is very beguiling and uh sort of undeniable and you've never really seen anything quite like it and uh she's very good at working with pattinson and sort of drawing all his like most uh personable and like enthralling like charms out of him and, and you know, sort of reshaping him. And she's she's good at sort of breaking her actors down and building them back up again. Um and uh yeah, no, it, it's A twenty four is releasing it's in limited release this week, but I think it'll be expanding around and uh if you can see high life, it's it's worth seeing in a theater. It's 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 a great experience.
1: I like how Robert Pattinson's career has taken this hard just, turn into art movies. Yep, Cronenberg Zero art Dini. movies
0: pretty much, yep.
1: And he's he works in them. I mean, I I really mm-hmm. I'm liking him in his last few movies. Definitely, he's gone Me beyond too. the vampire.
0: No, it's crazy that those two Twilight kids, who you know those movies I was always fairly indifferent to, have become like the the kings of horror cinema. I actually
1: yeah. liked the Twilight movies, especially <laughs> the second <laughs> okay. one. Okay, yeah, and it was sure. largely because of the force of their personalities right. and the right. way that that completely ridiculous world seemed to make sense just because their burning passion was somehow <sighs> believable. Yep, those kids. All right. Speaking of kids, I'm endorsing the music of a kid this week, um, an artist that I hope we talk about on this show, because I want to hear what Steve thinks of her, too. Um, Billie Eilish. Do you guys know about the the phenom that is Billie Eilish, the 17-year-old pop singer? The name I've
0: heard, but no, not really.
1: She just dropped her first full-length album. She's only had EPs and kind of online hits before this. But she's been big in the teen world for a while. And uh, my daughter, who just turned 13, has been into her since she discovered her her YouTube channel a couple years ago, probably. So Billie Eilish would have been just about 15 then. She writes songs with her brother. She only recently started using any kind of professional studio. They were just essentially doing home music on their computer. And when I heard her singing coming from my daughter's room, I thought, is she listening to Kate Bush? That's so cool. <laughs> and uh, and went in and said, who is that? And that was my discovery of Billie Eilish. And now she suddenly made it onto the scene. Like she's she's huge. I think she has 15 million followers on Instagram or something like that. She's got this full length album. And her self presentation is just very unusual for a teen pop star. She's sort of goth. She's very pale and droopy. One of her videos, and I don't know which song it is, but it's a beautiful song, Uh, Has this whole crazy concept where she's in an all-white room, but she's got sort of like black goo coming from her mouth. I mean, she's sort of a monstrous figure, but sings these very emo, lovely songs with a very Kate Bush-like kind of voice. And even the arrangements sound a little bit like something from from that time. Anyway, I don't know her music well enough at this point to recommend a specific track. I would just go online and start exploring Billie Eilish if you like gloomy, melancholy, beautiful-voiced pop stars with slightly disturbing videos. So her new album is called When We All Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go? And the artist is Billie
2: Eilish. All
1: right, Julia, thanks as always for joining us from LA. Wish you were here. Uh, miss you guys, it's nice here. I went and saw
2: the super bloom this weekend.
1: Can't complain. What's the super bloom?
2: It's when the desert blooms after a rainy winter in a ludicrous fashion.
1: Oh, fantastic. It's, cool. it's like going to see the leaves on the East Coast, right? right. It's or, the, or the, the exotic West Coast equivalent. Whatever. right? And David Sims, thank you so much for coming in. I hope you'll join us again.
0: Anytime. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
1: You will find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page at Slate.com slash CultureFest. You can email us at CultureFest at Slate.com. We also have a Twitter feed at SlateCultFest. And a few listeners have asked what happened to our Facebook page. It is true that Stephen and I have both gotten off of Facebook because of ideological reasons and also just not particularly liking the site. But there is a general Facebook page for Slate Culture podcasts, including us, Dakota Ring, Hit Parade, any Slate podcast, not about politics. That is Facebook.com slash Slate Culture Podcast. Again, Facebook.com slash Slate Culture Podcast. A few people have asked about that. So just so you know, it's another way to find us. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barrish. For Julia Turner and David Sims, I'm Dana Stevens, and we'll see you next week. Here's a sneak peek at this week's Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, plus ad-free podcasts, join us at slate.com slash culture plus. Hermione is Belle. Belle is Hermione. It's it all makes so much
2: sense. Right? Isn't she literally a bookworm, Belle?
0: Yeah, now <laughs> now like... she likes STEM, just like <laughs> just like everyone else. <laughs> <laughs>